Principle 7. If the wicked will not turn after all this, it is not God's fault that they perish, but it is their own fault. Their own stubbornness and rebellion is the cause of their damnation. Therefore they die because they choose to die. They refuse to turn. If you choose to go to hell, what remedy is there? God here acquits himself of your blood. It will not lie on him if you are lost. A negligent minister may face some blame, and those who encourage you in sin or do not hinder you in sin may bear some responsibility. But you can be certain that none of the fault can be placed upon God. Concerning his unprofitable vineyard, the Lord says, Judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 4. When he had planted it in productive soil, fenced it, gathered out the stones, and planted it with the best vines, what more could he have done? He has made you men and women, and has blessed you with reason. He has provided you with all external necessities. All creatures are at your service. He has given you a righteous, perfect law. When you had broken it and ruined yourselves, he had compassion on you and sent his Son by a miracle of condescending mercy to die for you and to be a sacrifice for your sins. And he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 The Lord Jesus has made you a covenant of a gift of himself and eternal life with him on the condition that you will simply accept it and turn. Based upon this reasonable condition, he has offered you the free pardon of all your sins. He has written this in his word, has sealed it by his spirit, and has sent it by his faithful ministers. They have made the offer to you hundreds of times and have called you to accept it and turn to God. In his name they have appealed to you, they have reasoned the case with you, and they have answered all your frivolous objections. God has long waited for you. He has even patiently allowed you to abuse him to his face. He has mercifully sustained you in the midst of your sins. He has compassed you about with all sorts of mercies. He has also mixed in afflictions to remind you of your foolishness and to call you to your senses. His Spirit has often been striving with your hearts, saying, Turn, sinner, turn to Him who is calling you. Where are you going? What are you doing? Do you know what the end will be for you? How long will you hate your friends and love your enemies? When will you let go of it all and turn and deliver yourself up to God, giving your Redeemer the possession of your soul? When will you turn? These pleadings have been used with you, and when you have delayed, you have been urged to hurry. God has called to you. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Hebrews 3 verse 15 Why not listen now without any more delay? Life has been set before you. The joys of heaven have been opened to you in the gospel. Their certainty has been demonstrated. The certainty of the everlasting torments of the damned has been declared to you 
Unless you would have seen heaven and hell, what more could you want? Christ has been, as it were, set forth crucified before your eyes. Galatians 3, verse 1. You have been told a hundred times that you are only lost people until you come to him. Just as often you have been told of the evil of sin, of the vanity of sin, the world, and all the pleasures and wealth it can provide, of the shortness and uncertainty of your lives, and of the endless duration of the joy or torment of the life to come. All this and more than this you have been told, and told again, even until you were tired of hearing it, and until you could begin to disregard it because you had heard it so often, like the blacksmith's dog that because of familiarity is brought to sleep under the noise of the hammers, and as the sparks fly around his ears. Even though all this has not converted you, you are still alive, and could have mercy to this day, if you simply had a heart to contemplate it. Let reason itself now be the judge, whether it is God's fault or your own, if after all this you remain unconverted and will be condemned. If you die now, it is because you choose to die. What more should be said to you? Or what course should be taken that is more likely to prevail? Are you able to truly say, we would gladly have been converted and become new creatures, but we could not? We would gladly have forsaken our sins, but we could not. We would have changed our company, our thoughts, and our conversation, but we could not. Why could you not, if you really desired to? What kept you from doing so except the wickedness of your hearts? Who forced you to sin, or who held you back from duty? Have you not had the same teaching, time, and liberty to be godly as your godly neighbors had? Then why could you not have been godly as well as they? Were the church doors shut against you, or did you not keep yourselves away, or sit and sleep, or hear as if you did not hear? Did God put any exceptions in His Word against you when He invited sinners to turn from sin and turn to Him, and when He promised mercy to those who do turn? Did He say, I will pardon all who repent except you? Did He shut you out from the liberty of His holy worship? Did He forbid you to pray to Him any more than others? You know He did not. God did not drive you away from Him but you forsook him and ran away yourselves. When he called you to him, you would not come. If God had left you out of the general promise and offer of mercy, or had said to you, Get away, I want nothing to do with people like you. Do not pray to me, for I will not hear you. No matter how much you repent and cry for mercy, I will not listen to you. If God had left you nothing to trust to but desperation, then you might have had a fair excuse. You might have said, Why should I repent and turn when it will do no good? But this was not your case. You could have had Christ to be your Lord and Savior, your head and husband, but you would not because you did not feel that you were sick enough for the physician and because you did not want to get rid of your disease. In your hearts you said as those rebels did, We will not have this man to reign over us. Luke 19, verse 14. 
Christ would have gathered you under the wings of his salvation, but you did not want him to. Matthew 23, verse 37. What desires for your good the Lord expressed in his holy word? With what compassion he stood over you and said, Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and that they had walked in my ways. Psalm 81, verse 13. Oh, that there were such an heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Deuteronomy 5, verse 29. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. Deuteronomy 32, verse 29. He would have been your God and would have done all for you that your souls could well desire. But you loved the world and your flesh above him, and therefore you would not listen to him. Although you sang his praises and gave him high titles, yet when it came to turning from self and sin and surrendering all to him, you wanted nothing to do with him. It is no wonder, then, if he gave you up to your own heart's lust, and you walked in your own counsel. Psalm 81, verses 11 through 12. God lowers himself to reason with you and plead the case with you. And he says to you, What is there in me or in my service that you are so much against me? What harm have I done to you, sinner? Have I deserved this unkind dealing at your hand? I have shown you many mercies. For which of them do you despise me? Is it I, or is it Satan who is your enemy? Is it I, or is it your carnal self that would destroy you? Is it a holy life, or is it a life of sin that you have cause to run from? If you are ruined, you did it to yourself by forsaking me, the Lord who would have saved you. Jeremiah 2, verse 17. Does not your own wickedness correct you? and your sin admonish you? You can see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken me. Jeremiah 2, verse 19. What iniquity have you found in me that you have followed after vanity and have forsaken me? Jeremiah 2, verses 5 through 6. He calls out, as it were, to the beasts to hear the quarrel he has against you. Scripture. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto you, and wherein have I wearied you? Testify against me, for I brought thee up out of Egypt, and redeemed thee. Micah 6, verses 2 through 4. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, Isaiah 1, verses 2 through 4. Do you thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that bought you? Hath he not made thee and established thee? Deuteronomy 32, verse 6.
when he saw that you forsook him, even for nothing, and turned away from the Lord of life to hunt after the chaff and emptiness of the world, he told you of your foolishness and called you to a more profitable use of your life. Scripture Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, verses 2 through 3, 6 through 7. See also Isaiah 1, verses 16 through 18. When you would not hear, what complaints you have caused him to bring against you, placing the blame on you because of your defiance and stubbornness. Scripture. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah 2, verses 12 through 13. Christ has often proclaimed that free invitation to you. Scripture, let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Revelation 22, verse 17. However, you caused him to complain after all his offers. You will not come to me that ye might have life. John 5, verse 40. He has invited you to feast with him in the kingdom of his grace, and you have had excuses based upon your property, your possessions, and your worldly business. When you would not come, you have said you could not, and you moved him to resolve that you would never taste of his supper. Luke 14, verses 16 through 25. Whose fault is it now but your own? What can you say is the main cause of your damnation but your own will? You choose to be condemned. The entire case is expressed in the Bible itself. Scripture Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse in the openings of the gates. In the city she uttereth her words, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn ye at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my Spirit upon you. I will make known my words unto you. Because I have called, and you refused, I have stretched out my hands, and no man regarded but you have said it not all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. 
They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge, and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way, and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Proverbs 1, verses 20-33 I thought it best to recite the whole text to you because it so fully shows the reason for the destruction of the wicked. It is not because God would not teach them, but because they would not learn. It is not because God would not call them, but because they would not turn at His reproof. Their self-will is their downfall. From what has been said, you may further learn the following things. 1. Not only can you see what blasphemy and impiety it is to try to place the blame of people's destruction upon God, but you can also see how unfit these wicked wretches are to bring such an accusation against their Maker. They cry out against God, saying that He gives them no grace, that His threatenings are severe, and that it is unreasonable that all who are not converted and sanctified should be condemned. They think it is a harsh standard that a short sin would have endless suffering. They say that if they are condemned, they cannot help it, even though in the meantime they are bringing about their own destruction, even the destruction of their own souls, and will not be persuaded to stop their destructive ways. They think that God would be cruel to condemn them, yet they are so cruel to themselves that they will run into the fire of hell when God has told them that it is only a little way ahead of them, and neither pleadings nor threatenings nor anything that can be said will stop them. We see them almost destroyed. Their careless, worldly, carnal lives tell us that they are in the power of the devil. We know that if they die before they are converted, all the world cannot save them. Knowing the uncertainty of their lives, we are afraid every day that they might drop into the fire. And therefore we plead with them to care about their own souls and not to destroy themselves when mercy is at hand. But they will not hear us. We plead with them to cast away their sin and come to Christ without delay and to have some mercy on themselves, but they refuse it all. Yet they think that God must be cruel if He condemns them. O oh, rebellious, miserable sinners, God is not cruel to you, but you are cruel to yourselves. You are told that you must turn or burn, yet you refuse to turn. You are told that if you choose to keep your sins, you must keep the curse of God with them yet you want to keep them. You are told that there is no way to happiness except by holiness, yet you will not be holy. What more do you want God to say to you? What would you have Him do with His mercy? He offers it to you, and you refuse it. You are in the ditch of sin and misery, and He offers you His hand to help you out, but you refuse His help. He wants to cleanse you of your sins, and you would rather keep them. You love your lust, 
gluttony, sports, and drunkenness, and you will not let them go. Would you have him bring you to heaven whether you want to go or not? Would you have him bring you and your sins to heaven together? That is an impossibility. You may as well expect him to turn the sun into darkness. Will an unsanctified carnal heart be in heaven? No, it cannot be. Nothing unclean can enter into it. Revelation 21 verse 27 What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? 2 Corinthians 6 verses 14 through 15 God says, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Romans 10 verse 21 What will you do now? Will you cry to God for mercy? God calls upon you to have mercy upon yourselves, and you will not. Ministers see the poisoned cup in the drunkard's hand. They tell him there is poison in the cup, and they desire him to have mercy on his soul and abstain from alcohol. But he refuses to listen. He must drink it, and he will. He loves it, and therefore, even though hell comes next, he says he cannot help it. What should one say to such people as these? We tell the ungodly, careless, worldly person that such a life will not help them or ever bring them to heaven. If a lion were behind you, you would start walking faster. However, when the curse of God is at your back and Satan and hell are at your back, will you not get moving? Instead, you ask, What need is there of all this fuss? Is an immortal soul of no more worth? Oh, have mercy upon yourselves. But they will have no mercy on themselves, nor pay any attention to us. We tell them that their end will be bitter. 2 Samuel 2, verse 26. Who can dwell with everlasting fire? Isaiah 33, verse 14. Yet they will have no mercy on themselves. These shameless transgressors will still say that God is more merciful than to condemn them, when they are the ones cruelly and unmercifully running upon condemnation. If we would go to them and beg them, we cannot stop them. If we would fall on our knees and plead with them, we cannot stop them. But they will go to hell. Yet they refuse to believe that they are going there. If for the sake of God who made them and preserves them, for the sake of Christ who died for them, and for the sake of their own souls, we plead with them to care about their own souls and to go no further in the way to hell, but to come to Christ while his arms are open, to enter into the state of life while the door stands open, and to receive his mercy while it may be had, they will not be persuaded. Even if we would die for it, we cannot as much as get them to occasionally consider the matter and turn. Yet they still say, I hope God will be merciful. Have you ever considered what he said in Isaiah 27 verse 11? Scripture, it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show them no favor. If another person will not clothe you when you are naked or feed you when you are hungry, 
you will say he is unmerciful. If he would cast you into prison or beat you or torment you, you would say he is unmerciful. Yet you will do a thousand times more against yourselves, even casting away both soul and body forever, and never complain of your own unmercifulness. Yes, and you consider God, who waited upon you all this time in his mercy, to be unmerciful if he punishes you after all this. Unless the holy God of heaven will allow these ungodly people to trample upon his son's blood, and with the Jews, as it were, to spit again in his face, and do despite unto the Spirit of grace, Hebrews 10, verse 29, and joke about sin, and ridicule holiness, and place more importance upon their fleshly pleasures than upon God's saving mercy. And unless, after all this, he will save them by the mercy that they cast away and wanted nothing to do with, God himself will be called unmerciful by them. However, he will be justified when he judges, and he will not stand or fall at the judgment seat of a sinful worm. I know that there are many specific objections and complaints that are brought by them against the Lord, but I will not try to answer them specifically here, as I have already done so in my treatise of judgment, to which I will refer them. If the disputing part of the world had been as careful to avoid sin and destruction as they have been busy in searching after their cause and indirectly attributing them to God, they could have exercised their minds more profitably, could have wronged God less, and could have better helped themselves. When such an ugly monster as sin is within us, when such a heavy thing as punishment is on us, and when such a dreadful thing as hell is before us, one would think it would be an easy question who is in the wrong, whether God or man is the main or blameworthy cause. Some people are such favorable judges of themselves that they are more inclined to accuse infinite perfection and goodness itself than their own hearts. They imitate their first parents who said, The serpent tempted me, and The woman whom you gave to me gave me the fruit, and I did eat, secretly implying that God was the cause. In the same way, these people say, the understanding that you gave to me was unable to discern. The will that you gave to me was unable to make a better choice. The objects that you set before me enticed me. The temptations that you allowed to attack me prevailed against me. Some people are so afraid to think that God can make a self-determining creature that they dare not deny him that which they take to be his prerogative, to be the determiner of the will in every sin as the first effective and immediate physical cause. Many people could be content to stop blaming God for causing so much evil if they could only reconcile it with his being the main cause of good. As if truths would no longer be truths if we were unable to see them in their perfect order and coherence. Because our tangled minds cannot perceive them properly together, nor assign each truth its proper place, we presume to conclude that some must be cast away. This is the fruit of proud self-conceit, when men and women do not receive God's truth as children in holy submission to the omniscience of our teacher, but as critics 
who are too wise to learn. Objection But we cannot convert ourselves until God converts us. We can do nothing without His grace. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Romans 9, verse 16. Answer. God has two decrees of mercy to show. First, he shows the mercy of conversion, and then he shows the mercy of salvation. He will give the latter only to those who desire and who run, and he has promised it only to them. The former is to make them willing who are unwilling. Although your own willingness and efforts do not deserve His grace, your willful refusal deserves that it should be denied to you. Your shortcoming is your very unwillingness itself, which does not excuse your sin, but makes it greater. You could turn if you were simply truly willing If your wills themselves are so corrupted that nothing except effectual grace will move them, you have even more cause to seek for that grace, to yield to it, and to do what you can in the use of means rather than neglecting it and setting yourselves against it. Do what you are able to do first, and then complain about God for denying you grace if you still have reason to do so. Objection but you seem to suggest all this time that man has free will. Answer 1. The dispute about free will is beyond your ability. Therefore I will not burden you with anything more now than this. Your will is naturally a free capability, or a self-determining ability. However, it is viciously inclined and hesitant to do good. We see, therefore, by sad experience, that it does not have a virtuous moral freedom. But it is this wickedness of it that deserves the punishment. I appeal to you not to deceive yourselves with opinions. Let the case be your own. If you had an enemy who was so malicious as to attack you and beat you or take away the lives of your children, would you excuse him because he said he did not have free will, but it was his nature? and he cannot choose unless God gives him grace? If you had an employee who robbed you, would you accept such an answer from him? Could not every thief and murderer who is to be hanged after a trial give such an answer? They could say, I do not have free will. I cannot change my own heart. What can I do without God's grace? Will they therefore be acquitted? If not, Why then would you think to be acquitted for a path of sin against the Lord? 2. Therefore you may also observe these three things together. 1. What a shrewd tempter Satan is. 2. What a deceitful thing sin is. And 3. What a foolish, corrupted creature man is. Satan is indeed a shrewd tempter for he persuades the majority of the world to go into everlasting fire when they have so many warnings and other attempts to dissuade them as they have. Sin is indeed a deceitful thing, for it beguiles so many thousands of people to part with everlasting life for something so low and completely unworthy. Man is indeed a foolish creature, for he will be defrauded of his salvation for nothing 
and even for something that is known to be nothing, and to be defrauded by an enemy, and a known enemy. You would think it would be impossible for anyone in his senses to be persuaded for a pittance to cast himself into the fire, or water, or into a coal pit, to the destruction of his life. Yet people will be enticed to cast themselves into hell. If your natural lives were in your own hand, that you would not die until you would kill yourselves, how long would most of you live? Yet when everlasting life is so much in your own hands under God that you cannot be destroyed until you destroy yourselves, how few of you will refrain from your own destruction? What a foolish thing man is, and what a beguiling and deceptive thing sin is. 3. You may learn from this that it is no great wonder if wicked people hinder others on the way to heaven that they want as many unconverted people as they can, that they would entice them into sin, and that they try to keep them in it. Can you expect them to have mercy on others when they will have none upon themselves? Can you expect them to hesitate much at the destruction of others when they do not hesitate to destroy themselves? They do no worse by others than they do by themselves. 4. Lastly, you may learn from this that the greatest enemy to man is himself. The greatest judgment in this life that can happen to him is to be left to himself. The great work that grace has to do is to save us from ourselves. The greatest accusations and complaints of people should be against themselves, and the greatest work we have to do ourselves is to resist ourselves. The greatest enemy that we should daily pray against, watch against, and strive against is our own carnal hearts and wills. The greatest part of your work, if you want to do good to others and help them to heaven, is to save them from themselves, even from their own blind understandings, corrupted wills, perverse affections, destructive passions, and unruly senses. I only name all these for brevity's sake, and will leave them to your further consideration. Well, now that we have discovered the great offender and murderer of souls, even ourselves, our own wills, what is left for you to do except to judge according to the evidence? Therefore confess this great iniquity before the Lord, be humbled for it, and do so no more. I will add a few more words to further convince you, to humble you, and to reform you if there is still any hope. First, we know so much about the exceedingly gracious nature of God who is willing to do good and who delights to show mercy that we have no reason to suspect Him of being the culpable cause of our death or to call Him cruel. He made everything good, and He preserves and maintains it all. The eyes of all wait upon him, and he gives them their meat in due season. He opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. Psalm 145, verses 15 through 16. Not only is he righteous in all his ways, and therefore will deal justly, and holy in all his works, and therefore is not the author of sin, but he is also good to all, 
and his tender mercies are over all his works. Psalm 145, verses 17 through 19. As for humans, we know that their minds are dark, their wills perverse, and their affections carry them so recklessly that they are equipped by their foolishness and corruption to such a work as destroying themselves. If you saw a lamb that had been killed in the field, would you first suspect a sheep or a wolf to have killed the sheep if they were both standing near? If you see a house broken open and the people murdered, would you first suspect the prince or judge, who is wise and just and had no need, or would you suspect a known thief or murderer? I say, therefore, as James said, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man to try to get him to sin. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James 1 verses 13 through 15 You see here that sin is the offspring of your own sinful desire, and God is not to be accused of it. Death is the offspring of your own sin, and it is the fruit that it will produce as soon as it is ripe. You have a supply of evil in yourselves, as a spider has of poison, from where you are bringing forth harm to yourselves, and spinning such webs that entangle your own souls. Your nature shows that you are the cause. Second, it is evident that you are your own destroyers, for you are quite ready to consider almost any temptation that is offered to you. Satan is hardly more ready to move you to any evil than you are ready to hear and to do as he wants you to do. If he tries to tempt your understanding to error and animosity, you yield. If he wants to hinder you from good resolutions, it is soon done. If he desires to quiet any good desires or affections, it is soon done. If he wants to kindle any lust, vile affections, or sinful desires in you, it is soon done. If he tries to have you think evil thoughts, speak sinful words, or commit unholy deeds, you are so free and willing that he does not need to push you to do so. If he attempts to keep you from holy thoughts, words, and ways, he can merely suggest it, and you gladly comply. You do not examine his suggestions, resist them with any determination, throw them out as he casts them in, nor quench the sparks that he attempts to kindle. But you side with him, meet him halfway, embrace his suggestions, and tempt him to tempt you. It is easy for him to catch such greedy fish that are looking for bait and will take the bare hook. Third, your destruction is evidently of yourselves, in that you resist all who try to help save you and want to do you good or prevent you from ruining yourselves. God wants to help and save you by His Word, and you resist it. He wants to sanctify you by His Spirit, and you resist and quench Him. If anyone reproves you for your sin, you reply in anger with evil words. If He tries to lead you to a holy life and tell you of your present danger, you give Him little thanks 
but either tell him to mind his own business because he will not have to answer for you, or you brush him aside with heartless thanks and will not turn when you are urged to do so. If godly ministers want to privately instruct and help you, you will not go to them. Your unhumbled souls do not feel much need of their help. If they try to teach you, you think you are too old to be taught, even though you are not too old to be ignorant and unholy. No matter what they say to you for your good, you are so self-conceited and wise in your own eyes, even in the depth of ignorance, that you will not consider anything that does not agree with your present conceits. But you will contradict your teachers as if you were wiser than they. By your ignorance, disobedience, foolish arguments, wayward evasions, and ungrateful rejections, you resist all that they can say to you so that no good that is offered to you can find any welcome, acceptance, or consideration with you. Fourth, moreover, it is apparent that you are destroying yourself and that you infer the matter of your sin and destruction even from the blessed God himself. You do not like the ways of his wisdom. You do not like his justice, but take it for cruelty. You do not like his holiness, but you want to think that he is similar to you, Psalm 50, verse 21, and that he downplays sin as you do. You do not like his truth, but would like to have his threatenings, even his uncompromising threatenings, proven to be false. His goodness, which you seem most highly to approve, you partly resist because it would lead you to repentance, and you partly abuse to the strengthening of your sin, as if doing so allows you to sin more freely because God is merciful and because His grace so much abounds. Fifth, yes, you even bring down destruction from the blessed Redeemer, and you bring down death from the Lord of life Himself. Nothing more emboldens you in sin than that Christ has died for you, as if now the danger of death were over, and you can boldly risk your soul. You live as if Christ has become a servant to Satan and your sins, and must serve you while you are offending him. Because he is the physician of souls, and is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him, Hebrews 7 verse 25, you think he must allow you to refuse his help and throw away his cures and that he must save you whether you will come to God by him or not. Therefore, a great part of your sins are brought about by your bold presumption upon the death of Christ, not considering that he came to redeem his people from their sins. Matthew 1 verse 21. You sanctify them a special people to himself. Titus 2 verse 14 and to conform them in holiness to the image of their heavenly Father and to their head. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 through 16. Colossians 3, verse 10. Philippians 3, verses 9 through 10. Sixth, you also bring down your own destruction from all the providences and works of God. When you think of His eternal foreknowledge and decrees, it is to harden you in your sin or to possess your minds with argumentative thoughts, as if his decrees might spare you the labor of repentance and a holy life, 
or else were the cause of your sin and death. If he afflicts you, you complain. If he causes you to prosper, you forget him even more, and consider even less the life that is to come. If the wicked prosper, you forget the end that will set all accounts straight, and you are ready to think it is just as good to be wicked as godly. Thus you bring about your death from all of this. Seventh, you misuse to your ruin all the creatures and mercies of God to you. He gives them to you as the tokens of His love and furnishings for His service, and you turn them against Him to the pleasing of your flesh. You eat and drink to please your appetite, and not for the glory of God, and to enable you to perform His work. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 Your clothes become a source of pride to you. Your riches take your heart away from heaven. Your honors and commendations puff you up. If you have health and strength, it makes you more secure and you forget your end. Yes, and even other people's mercies are perverted by you to your harm. If you see their honors and dignity, you are moved to envy them. If you see their riches, you are ready to covet them. If you look upon beauty, you are stirred up to lust. It is good if godliness itself is not a disgrace to you. Eighth, the very gifts that God bestows on you and the ordinances of grace that He has instituted for His church, you turn to sin. If you have better abilities than others, you grow proud and self-conceited. If you have only ordinary gifts, you consider them to be special grace. You take the simple hearing of your duty for so good a work as if it would excuse you for not obeying it. Your prayers are turned into sin because you regard iniquity in your hearts. Psalm 66 verse 18 And you do not depart from iniquity when you call on the name of the Lord. 2 Timothy 2 verse 19 Your prayers are abominable because you turn away your ear from hearing the law. Proverbs 28, verse 9. And you are more ready to offer the sacrifice of fools, thinking that you do God some special service, than to hear His word and obey it. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Ninth, the people with whom you speak and all their actions you make the occasions of your sin and destruction. If they live in the fear of God, you hate them. If they live ungodly, you imitate them. If the wicked are many, you think you may more boldly follow them. If the godly are few, you are more encouraged to despise them. If they walk strictly, you think they are too precise. If one of them falls in a particular temptation, you stumble and turn away from holiness because others are imperfectly holy, as if you were justified in breaking your neck because some other people have by their carelessness, sprained a muscle or broken a bone. If a hypocrite discloses himself, you say, they are all alike, and you think that you are as honest as the best. A professing Christian can hardly make any mistake, but because he cuts his finger, you think you may boldly cut your throat. If godly ministers deal plainly with you, you say they scold. If they speak gently, 
or coldly, you either sleep under them or are little more affected than the seats you sit upon. If any errors creep into the church, some gladly consider them, and others reproach the Christian doctrine for them, which is mostly against them. If we would try to bring you away from any ancient rooted error, which can plead only two or three or seven hundred years' custom, you are as much offended with a motion for reformation as if you were to lose your life by it, and you cling to old errors while you speak out against new ones. Hardly a difference can arise among the ministers of the gospel, but you will bring about your own death from it. You will not hear, or at least not obey, the unquestionable doctrine of any of those who do not agree with your delusions. One person will not hear a minister because he reads his sermons. Another person will not hear him because he does not read them. One will not hear him because he says the Lord's Prayer, and another will not hear him because he does not use it. One person will not hear those who are for formal church ceremonies, and another will not hear those who are against it. It is clear that the ungodly are self-destroyers, and that their damnation is of themselves. I could show you many other cases in which you turn all that comes near you to your own destruction. Upon the consideration of what has been said, and upon reviewing your own ways, I think you should consider what you have done and you should be ashamed and deeply humbled to remember it. If you are not, I ask you to consider these following truths. 1. To destroy yourself is to sin against the deepest principle in your natures, the principle of self-preservation. Everything naturally desires or inclines to its own happiness, welfare, or perfection, and will you bring about your own destruction? When you are commanded to love your neighbors as yourselves, it is supposed that you naturally love yourselves. But if you love your neighbors no better than you now love yourselves, and that you bring about your own damnation, it seems you want all the world to be damned. 2. How completely you obstruct your own intentions. I know you do not intend your own damnation even when you are obtaining it. You think you are only doing good to yourselves by gratifying the desires of your flesh, but sadly, it is only as a drink of cold water in the midst of a burning fever, or as the scratching of a severe rash which increases the disease and pain. If you indeed want to have pleasure, profit, or honor, seek them where they are to be found, and do not hunt after them in the way to hell. Number three, what a pity it is that you would do against yourselves that which no one else on earth or in hell can do. If all the world were combined against you, or all the demons in hell were combined against you, they could not destroy you without yourselves, nor make you sin except by your own consent. And will you do against yourselves that which no one else can do? You have hateful thoughts of the devil because he is your enemy and seeks your destruction. And will you be worse to yourselves than the devil will be? If you had a heart to understand it, you would see that this is how it is with you. When you run into sin, when you run from godliness, and when you refuse to turn at the call of God, 
You do more against your own souls than people or demons could do. If you would rack your brain to try to do the greatest harm to yourself, you could not devise anything greater. Number four, you are false to the trust that God has committed to you. He has much entrusted you with your own salvation. And will you betray your trust? He has set you with all diligence to keep your hearts. Proverbs 4, verse 23. And is this how you keep them? Number five. You even forbid all others to show compassion to you when you will have no compassion on yourselves. If you cry out to God in the day of your calamity for mercy, what can you expect Him to do except to push you away and say, No, you would not have mercy on yourself. What brought this upon you but your own obstinance? If your brethren see you in everlasting misery, how will they feel sorry for you when you destroyed yourself and would not be dissuaded? Number six. It will everlastingly make you your own tormentor in hell to think that you brought yourselves willingly to that misery. Oh, what a painful thought it will be to forever know that this was your own doing. You were warned of this day, and warned again, but you would not listen. You willfully sinned and willfully turned away from God. You had time, as well as others, but you misused it. You had teachers as well as others, but you refused their instruction. You had holy examples, but you did not imitate them. You were offered Christ and grace and glory as well as others, but you had more concern for your fleshly pleasures. You had a price in your hands, but you did not have the heart to get wisdom. Proverbs 17, verse 16. Can it fail to torment you to think of your present foolishness? Oh, that your eyes were open to see what you have done in willingly wronging your own souls. Oh, that you better understood these words of God. Scripture. Hear instruction and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Proverbs 8, verses 33-36